Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to give you all a heads up about some sound issues we had in this episode. The audio gets a bit wonky in the interview section of the show. And I don't know if it's because it was an international Skype thing or just because my computer and its mic are prehistoric. But whatever the reason, it's not always so great. And while I've been able to get it to a mostly listenable state, there are times where I may need to jump in and that'll be when the audio gets too muffled. I apologize ahead of time for any weirdness in that area. And with that out of the way, let's start the show. Welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? I'm April. And I'm Rachel. How you doing, Rachel? I'm all right, April. Just one heads up, I'm a little bit disappointed about the sound on this. It's okay. I think we'll enjoy the subject anyway. Uh, I'm super excited about this week's episode. Yeah, me too. It's one of my favorite subjects. Have you ever seen The Thomas Crown Affair? I haven't seen that, which I can't believe, but I love art heist movies. Okay, basically, The Thomas Crown Affair is a movie about a sexy, rich dude who thinks he's pulled off the heist of the century and the sexy insurance investigator who will do anything to get her man. It was first released in 1968 with Faye Dunaway and Steve McQueen, and then it was remade in 1999 with Rene Russo and Pierce Brosnan, and the latter version centered around an art heist. I'll admit, I like both versions. The first one is universally considered to be the better version, but man, Remington Steele flirting with Rene Russo. (laughs) Any day of the week, please. (laughs) Turns out, though, that the art heist world is a little less romantic than the movies that we see. So we got a pretty great guest this week. Actually, a fantastic guest. He's an expert, one of the experts on art crime, and that includes art heist and forgery. We're going to talk to Dr. Noah Charney, and he's going to let us know if these art heists are anything like the movies and books we read. Awesome. I can't wait to hear it. My name is Dr. Noah Charney. I'm a best-selling author, professor of art history based in Europe, and I specialize in the history of art crime. And how did you become interested in art and art crime? Well, this goes back to when I was a student. Back when I was 16 years old, I spent a semester abroad with my boarding school in Paris, and I studied art history. But I thought I would study from a traditional perspective, and I was interested in Renaissance iconography. But in, I guess it was 2002, 2003, when I was doing a master's program in the UK, I decided I wanted to write a novel set behind the scenes in the art world. And I was doing research for the novel that would eventually become my first book, The Art Thief. And I realized that there was very little written about art crime from an academic perspective. The total output of books available was actually quite small. So I began to grow interested in studying it academically and realized that there was really no field of study at the time. It requires a little bit of criminology, a little bit of art history, art law, museum security studies. You have to have a comfort level in a variety of disciplines. And so I sort of started out the field trying to bring together the interdisciplinary field of study for the first time and create a criminological 
um, theoretical superstructure for a type of crime that has been largely overlooked. Oh, that's great. I didn't realize that the field hadn't even existed um, on behalf of artists like myself and people who are also interested in heist. I'd like to thank you. <laughs> I was first made aware of your work through a CNN article. And it was about the largest art heist to date. Could you tell us about this art heist? Well, the largest art heist uh, in history, in peacetime history, is also the largest property theft in peacetime history. And that's 13 works of art from the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum. Um, and that was on such a scale in terms of the value of the object that I, as far as I know, it is the largest property heist in peacetime history, not just the largest artifact. It's also probably the second most famous artifact behind the Mona Lisa theft in 1911. In 1990, security guards at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston admitted two men posing as police officers responding to a disturbance call. Once these guys were inside, the men tied the guards up and over the next hour stole 13 works of art. When people think of art theft, this is certainly the unsolved case that they're most likely to think about. 13 objects, depending on who you ask, because the value of art is very nebulous, is probably worth between 300 and 500 million dollars. But that's if the objects were sold on the open market, which of course they can't be because everyone knows that they're hot items. In terms of the resale value of stolen art, it's very complicated. The shortest version of it is that for illicitly looted antiquities, which come directly out of the earth or sometimes the sea, and have never existed before for modern humans, so they're not cataloged, they aren't registered anywhere, nobody knows what they are, but they were dug directly out of the earth. Those objects can be sold for something approaching their full value using some fake documentation that suggests that they were illegally excavated and exported. But for works of art that are part of collections and were therefore registered um, and then registered as having been stolen, there is no open market for them. So when objects like the work stolen from the Gardner Museum, which include iconic famous paintings, like Vermeer's The Concert, Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Manet's Chez Tortoni. These are works that are unique and immediately identifiable. And anyone who would bother to look, and many people who wouldn't think to look, just know through the cultural oxygen that these are famous stolen works. And so they have no open market to be shot. So the logical question is how they have value. And there are a couple different ways. What most people think of when they think of stolen art is works of art that were ordered to be stolen by criminal collectors. But in fact, in the history of hundreds, thousands of years of art theft, there are very few cases we know of where there's actually someone who's a criminal collector who takes works of art that he doesn't own and asks somebody to steal them for him. That is largely the realm of fiction and film. There are some prominent exceptions to the rule and real-life examples, but it is very, very rare. What happens far more often is that stolen works of art are either stolen by individuals who are working alone, often for more ideological reasons than financial, as in Vincenzo Perugia stealing the Mona Lisa in 1911, or the works are stolen by people associated with organized crime. By organized crime, I do mean the large-scale international mafia, 
But the definition of organized crime from a criminological standpoint is much broader. It's any group of three or more individuals working together in criminal enterprises for collective long-term goals. And when I use that description, you can see how it's very broadly applied. It actually separates individual thieves and very small groups of criminals who are stealing in order to get as much money as possible, for instance, to buy drugs and they don't have an organizing principle and long-term goals. So with famous stolen art is stolen, there's a likelihood that it is stolen initially to try to find a private buyer because criminals seem to understand the art market and the stolen art market much like the general public. They watch the same movies. I don't know how many novels they're reading, but they seem to get the same vibe the general public gets, which is under the misapprehension that it's relatively easy to find criminal buyers of stolen art, when in reality we know it's not. But that is the initial motivation for much art theft, trying to find a criminal collector to sell it to. Quite quickly, the criminals will realize that they can't find anybody who matches the description that they were expecting. And in some cases, they accidentally sell it to an undercover police officer, and that's how much of the more famous stolen art is recovered. The more sinister and complicated side is that knowing that it's hard to find a buyer, thieves who manage to get a hold of stolen art will sometimes trade it in a closed barter or collateral system with other criminals. And by this, I mean that they will swap stolen art for other illicit goods for which there is danger in trying to convert into cash, like drugs or arms. And they will never try to cash in on the object. If you never try to find a buyer to give you cash for it, then it's relatively safe. And it's like a check that nobody's going to try to cash, but everybody agrees that it's worth X amount of money. Hey guys, I just want to jump in here and summarize what Noah was saying in case you missed anything. So it turns out that it's actually rare for an art heist to be pulled off by an overeager collector who actually wants the piece. Usually it's a group of criminals who think they'll be able to find a collector, but it turns out that's super hard to do because buying stolen masterpieces isn't really what collectors do. So when the criminals find that out, they'll most likely try to unload the pieces by trading them for stuff like drugs or arms. And that's arms as in guns, not arms as in people's arms. Although I'm not a criminal, I don't know. All right, let's get back to the interview. You might also get stolen art used as collateral for a loan or for goods in kind, like collateral for drugs that will then be sold on the open market. And then money is paid to retrieve the stolen painting, um, which would go on to act as collateral in other such deals. Then the final option is that the works are stolen in order to be ransomed, and this is referred to as art mapping. So those are the primary financial motivations for thieves to steal art. Wow, so that's much, much darker than, say, the Thomas Crown affair. It is, um, and one of the reasons that it's much darker is the majority of stolen art is involved in organized crime, and therefore the damage goes much beyond the art and the art world because it fuels and funds all manner of other activities in which organized crime is involved, like the drug and arms trade and even terrorism. Whoa, I had no idea it was that dark. 
So in this case, were any of those pieces recovered? No, the, the 13 objects stolen in the Gardner heist, uh, of them, none of them have been recovered. It's a, a bit of a complicated story. So it's not as cut and dry that they went in, took 13 predetermined objects and left. There were some things they tried to access that they couldn't, and for whatever reason they picked something else instead. They wanted to take um, a Napoleonic battle flag, but it was in a glass case, and for some reason, instead of breaking the glass case, they took an eagle-shaped fitment that would have sat on top of the hole of the battle flag. There was a large 17th-century uh, Dutch painting that they wanted to take. They took it off the wall, but I think they decided it was too big and unwieldy. They were careful with some works, and some works they stepped on um, accidentally, I imagine. And so it's an odd mixture. It was not such a clinical theft as you might think if you, if you see Thomas Crown Affair movies. The big question is who is behind it and what did they do with it? And that's still up in the air. There have been some very compelling theories put forward by people who specialize in the case. I teach about it, but I'm not a specialist in this case in particular. But it's certain that there were organized crime groups involved. It's also um, almost certain that the people who were involved in the theft are all dead, including the people who know where the art is. And this is why it's a problem. Um, the FBI and the various private investigators are quite stuck. They've gotten to a certain point. Um, they're hoping to stir up more information, but it's, it's quite clear that they're stuck, and that's why they've been holding press conferences. That's why they recently um, doubled the reward for information leading to the successful recovery of all of the objects from $5 million reward to $10 million. But it shows that they're at a point where they're, they're not quite sure where to turn next. Hey, it's me again. Not sure if you caught that, but Noah just said the FBI investigators are stuck on this case, so they raised the reward money from $5 million to $10 million. Um, one of the questions that came up was two years ago when the FBI had a press conference in which they basically said as much as they felt they could in terms of how far they got, and it was an open plea for more information. And as soon as please do that, that's a sign that they don't feel like they can make any further progress on their own. Yeah. And the recent increase in the reward is also a, an act of desperation because, to be honest, a $5 million reward is absolutely enormous. And um, nobody was sitting on information saying, uh, if only it was a $10 million reward, <laughs> I would turn these in immediately, but only $5 million? That, that, that's not uh, a logical way of thinking for criminals. So it, it shows that they're stuck in it. As far as I know, all the people who were involved who could have been prosecuted are dead. Um, but that means also the people who know exactly where the art is. And so the question is, can it be recovered? Um, as far as I know and as far as I've heard, it's all in good condition. It doesn't make sense for the art to have been mistreated. There's a lot of benefit for the art to have been well cared for. So it maintains its value. And if there was anyone who knew where it was, they would probably have managed to figure out a way to turn it in and get the reward by now. Um, the latest I heard is from an investigator named Arthur Brand, who is a Dutch art investigator who's very brilliant and hugely successful and one of only a very small number of people in the world who specialize in art recovery. Um, and he recently said that he's sure that all of the art is in Ireland. But that said, where exactly in Ireland is it? 
is a question. Otherwise, he would have turned it in and, and collected the reward himself by now. So uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a needle in a haystack still. <laughs> well, $10 million might inspire some armchair investigators to get out there, but I don't know how well they do if the FBI is stuck. There's actually there's a little bit of a competition between the FBI and several private investigators, all of whom are very passionate, very knowledgeable, um, but each one is sort of trying to race to recover the work. The reward aside, it's also it's sort of the big trophy that an investigator in this field could aspire to. And they're all so good and knowledgeable and so well connected also with um, criminal informants and whatnot. And if the knowledge was out there that would lead directly to the works, uh, I'm sure they would have found it by now. So I think at this point, it's literally going to be a matter of time and luck. At some point, somebody's going to stumble on the hiding place of the works. But the proactive search and looking for information, I think it would have bore fruit um, if it were to do so through um, information being passed on. I think it's now just a matter of luck, to be honest. So you said that the people involved that we knew were involved are dead. How did we know they were involved? Through the investigations of some of the private investigators and also through the FBI and published in a couple of books that reference the case, they usually get it through paid criminal informants. That's how most art recoveries take place. All police departments have funds set aside to pay criminals essentially to rat out on other criminals and to pass on gossip. And this is how a lot of recoveries take place by police learning rumors through paid criminal informants, which they then investigate. And then in terms of recovering stolen art, for those famous recoveries have taken place with uh, sting operations where um, a detective goes undercover and tries to pose as a criminal art collector and is offered illicit goods and then the goods are recovered in the process. Are there other art theft and art crimes that really have blown your mind? Oh, there's loads of them. Um, many people don't realize how big a problem it is. There are tens of thousands of reported art thefts per year worldwide. Uh, depends on the year, but Italy usually has around 20,000 a year, and that's just in Italy. So it's a very big scale problem. Um, it's been called the third highest frozen criminal trade worldwide, behind only the drug and arms trades. And it's on a very, very big scale that's only really been taken seriously in recent years with groups like ISIS being so overt about earning significant income through this trade in antiquities that people start to take it more seriously. So there are loads of fascinating cases. I have a whole book about the Ghetto Altarpiece, which is the most frequently stolen artwork in history, which was the object of 13 crimes, including six thefts over its 600 year existence. And one of its 12 tales is still missing. So that's probably the, the case that I find personally most fascinating. Have there been documentaries on this? I feel like there's a oh, there, yeah, there's a, there's a, it's a pretty good documentary, popular topic. There's a good one that I helped with that's uh, with the BBC that was called The World's Most Expensive Stolen Paintings. There's a good one called Stolen Explanation Point about the Gardner effect, but that's many years old now, so it's um it hasn't been updated. And there's a very good one called Blood Antiques that talks about illicit trade and antiquities and how it funds terrorism. Um, those are just to name a few, but it's, it's, a, it's a frequently filmed topic. Is there anything before I let you go that you want to tell us about the world of art crime that 
you feel like we haven't really discussed or anything? Uh, it's totally fascinating. Maybe for a, for a different interview, we could talk about forgery, which was the subject of uh, a book of mine in 2015, because that's a distinct subject, but I want to find particularly interesting. And I would also say, if anybody's interested in studying this in depth, this organization of mine, ARCA, runs the first interdisciplinary academic program in the world where you could actually study this. Okay, so the audio starts to get pretty rough right there. I just want to go over what Noah is talking about at the end. He is the founding director of an organization called ARCA, and that stands for the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art. And every summer in Italy, it has a program with internationally renowned scholars and investigators who teach in-depth courses to postgraduate students. And he concluded with saying that it's a lot of fun, and if anyone's interested, they're welcome to study there one summer. And I gotta say, I'm 100% interested in that program. I'd love, love, love to spend a summer studying art crime in Italy. Yeah, I think we should sign up for that program right now. And while we're at it, you know the part where he says, at this point, solving the Isabella Stewart Gardner museum heist is pretty much a matter of luck and someone may just stumble upon these pieces. We should take a trip to Ireland. Oh yeah, maybe we can find it ourselves. Yeah, we'll accidentally solve the crime. I would really like that. That would be awesome. That would make for a great summer vacation. Okay, well, let's uh, put together a little bit of a package. We'll go study and then solve a crime. I like that idea. Since I won't qualify to join the FBI, I think that'll, you know, get get me my fix. You don't qualify to join the FBI? No, I don't think either of us qualify to join the FBI. I'm not going to find out. I'm just going to assume I qualify. I mean, I think we qualify in most areas. I think it's just, you know, pot is still illegal yeah. and uh, you have to prove that you haven't smoked it in seven years. Oh, well, I haven't smoked it. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe smoked is not the right word. I've eaten you, it, but I haven't smoked it. You haven't it. used it. Yeah, you can't have used any illicit drugs in seven years. Uh, and they question your family members. And I wouldn't want to make any of my family members have to lie. Yeah, I don't smoke weed anymore either. I hardly ever do it at all. But yeah, you know, it's not I probably favorite. did within seven years. Yeah, there's a chance actually within seven years. Yeah, I found it super fascinating too, the way that... I I guess I never thought completely, you know, I love the Pink Panther movies and I feel like there were a lot of, weren't there a lot of art heists in some Pink Panther movies? It sure feels like it. Yeah. So I, I think that's my relation to art heists and there's a few great documentaries I've seen, but it always did seem like, okay, you steal the Mona Lisa and there's going to be some dealer who wants to buy that from you. I had no idea how difficult it would be to sell that stuff. Of course it would be difficult. I mean, who's going to buy the Mona Lisa? You know, I mean, yeah. it, it just, you don't want that stuff to surface. You can't hang it in your house. Um, I guess you could hang it and say it's a fake. I don't know. But but yeah, where is the market for this stolen art? Although I have to say, um, he did talk a little bit about antiquities and how museums have gotten antiquities. And I know that the Getty had some issues a few years ago about how they purchased some of their antiquities, which were purchased probably 50 years ago by J. Paul Getty. So clearly it's easier to pass antiquities, one, because they're not world-renowned masterpieces for the most part. And also I'd say 
provenance is probably easier to forge. With the Mona Lisa forging a provenance for that, it's going to be hard. It's hard to prove that you have a history of sales and you got it legitimately specifically because that's not for sale so far as I know. Uh, (laughs) Right. And also antiquities aren't, I don't think that, especially at the time, 50 years ago, people were just going in and looting stuff. You know, know, if you look at all those stories about going into Egyptian tombs back in the 20s and there was all this new archaeological excavation, I'm sure people took souvenirs. I'm sure people went out and just took whatever. Of course they did. I mean, there weren't standards of operation for a lot of digs back in the day. I mean, just like medical practices, it's not until fairly recently that you even make sure that a crime scene is secure. Uh, <laughs> nobody's putting their DNA all over it. These are things that are are pretty recent. Isn't it amazing to think that they're recent? They just seem like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know. But we didn't know because we were dum-dums. Stone cold we, dum-dums. We didn't know. I looked up Arthur Brand, the Dutch investigator that Noah talked about, and he's apparently called the Indiana Jones of the art world. And there's a January 20th Boston Globe article I'm going to put up on the website. It's fascinating. He's throwing down the gauntlet saying that he thinks he can solve this, the largest heist of all time this year. He thinks that he's going to hone in on them. Well, we better get going on it then. It's time to get our asses moving. So with the Ghent altarpiece, you know that that one's been stolen so many times, apparently six, although Wikipedia says seven, but Noah says six during this interview. So we'll go with him because he's the man in the know. It was stolen by Napoleon during the French Revolution. It was stolen by Germany during World War One. It was stolen by Germany again in World War Two. They stole it from themselves? No, it was returned after World War One. And then the Monuments Men, you know that movie? You know the Monuments Men? No. Okay, they're really cool. You should read about them. I don't know if you want to watch the movie, but it's entertaining. It's about this group of guys in World War II that are charged with returning and recovering all of the art that Hitler was stealing. So the Monuments Men actually got the Ghent altarpiece back at that time. So all in all, it was stolen six times. It's arguably the most desirable piece of property and piece of art in all of history because nothing has been through that kind of thievery. And it is at the Getty. So I'm suggesting we take a little field trip out to the Getty, maybe do a video and see what all the fuss is about. That sounds fun. We could put it up on our Patreon site for our subscribers. A little additional treat for you guys. Perfect. I also love the idea of talking to Noah about forgeries, and that's a whole nother world of fascinating crimes. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. I am also going to put all of the documentaries that Noah listed up on our website. And some of them you can watch there. Some of them you'll need to go check them out. You can find them on different streaming sites. The first one is Stolen, and that is specifically about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And the second one is called The World's Most Expensive Stolen Paintings. That's a BBC documentary. The third one is Blood Antiques, and that's the one that talks about antiquities and being used by terrorist groups like ISIS. So the organized crime aspect and the terror and the arms and the weapons, that's really dark and disturbing and 
also still very interesting and really important for us to know about that kind of stuff right now. Can't wait to check out all those links. Yeah, I'm really excited by everything we've learned. I feel like this is one of those subjects that for every question I had answered, I had three more questions pop up. And sadly, due to the technical difficulties and the time delay, I just didn't have time to ask all of these. So I'm asking everybody to go to a second location. That's rufsmpodcast.com and check this stuff out because there's so many cool stories and weird stories. And maybe they're not like the Thomas Crown Affair, but still pretty romantic anyways. I loved this episode and I hope you guys did too. I I did. (laughs) It was really exciting to wake up at 4 a.m. to try to get all of my stuff set up so I could call across the world to speak with the person who basically set up how we study art crimes. Pretty thrilling. I love this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us. And as always, we always uh, try to plug our website. So check us out at our website, rufsmpodcast.com. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And we have a Patreon site set up. And we also have a GoFundMe site set up. So if you're loving the podcast and want to support us, we would love that. And but you don't have to. We love you anyway. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. 